evening. I'm going to read uh, before our scripture passage this evening from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 24 and 25. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 24 and 25. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. And now our our scripture text this evening Our sermon text comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, but I'm going to begin reading in chapter 5, verse 18, for the sake of context. So beginning in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word, the very words of eternal life, and you would do well to give it your full attention. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Will you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we 
thank you for the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, which is your power unto salvation. We pray as we listen to your word preached that you would open our hearts to receive this gospel and that by your spirit you would give us faith to believe what the scriptures teach and your grace to obey all that it commands. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What is application? Oftentimes Christians believe that application is merely something that we are to externally do or not do. Do this or don't do that. And certainly the external do's and don'ts have a place in the application of Scripture. However, what are more basic to the external do's and don'ts are the internal thoughts of a person. Did Christ our Lord not teach us this Himself? For example, concerning adultery, the Lord stated, You have heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery. There's the external act. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. The Lord does this also with murder, stating that everyone who is even angry with his brother will already be liable to judgment. He already has murder in his heart if he has unrighteous anger towards his brother. You see, what is more basic than the do's and don'ts of our outward actions are the inward thoughts of a person. Said with different words, application is first and foremost a matter of the heart. Again, Jesus taught us that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Application, beloved, is first and foremost an inward reality before it is an outward reality. Reality. And the application of the text before us this evening is right along these very lines. The 11th and final verse of our passage commands you to consider, to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word, consider, can also be translated to reckon or to credit in an accounting way. And this word also contains within it, within its semantic domain, the idea of thinking. The application of this text, therefore, is not so much an external do or don't, but an internal thought process that we are to possess. We are commanded. It's an imperative. 
We are commanded to understand something about our identity in Christ the Lord. As believers, we are to consider, to think of, to understand ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now before Paul gives us this command, he teaches us why we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. I might put it this way. Verses 1 through 10 give us the basis for the command that we have down in verse 11. In other words, the ground for the command to consider yourself dead to sin is given in the first 10 verses of this passage. And so let's spend some time putting this command in context. Paul begins this passage with a rhetorical question. He asks, what shall we say then? Two questions actually. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now this is the whole issue that Paul deals with in this passage. Should believers continue in sin so that grace may abound? This is the issue that leads to the command in verse 11 to consider yourselves dead to sin. But why does Paul ask this question? Well, he does so because he sees a possible misconception to what he has been teaching in the previous chapter. It's why I began our scripture reading back in chapter 5. And so it is vital to understand the teaching of Paul in chapter 5 in order to understand why Paul is asking this question. Now in that chapter, in chapter 5, Paul had been teaching that when Adam sinned, all mankind sinned. When Adam fell, all of mankind fell. Why? Because Adam represented all of mankind in the first covenant God made with man. Adam was the first covenant head, the first covenant representative. So when Adam sinned, all of mankind sinned in him and fell with him because he was our covenant representative. I heard one pastor put it this way. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so on account of the first sin, mankind is now in an estate of sin and misery. And what are the wages of sin? The wages of sin are death. It's death and condemnation. Now also in that fifth chapter, Paul teaches that many years after the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden... Many years later, God gave the law to His people Israel. And the giving of the law caused sin to increase. It caused sin to abound. When the law was given, sin increased even beyond that first sin. 
that Adam committed. And so the giving of the law caused sin to increase or to abound. Now, here is why Paul states all of this. He tells us these things so that we might understand that though sin came into the world through Adam and abounded through the giving of the law, nevertheless, grace abounded all the more through Jesus Christ. Amen. Here's the way Paul says it in chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, the last two verses. If you have your Bibles still open, it would serve you well to look at those final two verses there in chapter 5. Beginning in verse 20, he writes, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, to increase that sin of Adam. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, keep in mind the language there of reigning. It will come back around later in the sermon. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. Now, we can see why Paul asks his question in the beginning of our passage. He recognizes that a misconception might arise from the teaching he just gave in chapter 5. Namely, that if the increase of sin causes grace to abound, then maybe we should continue to sin so that grace would abound all the more. Do you see why he states the question in verse 1 of our passage? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And this is it. This is the issue that Paul is dealing with throughout our text. This is the issue that leads to the command in verse 11 to consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so how does Paul immediately answer his own question? Well, first I want you to notice the absolute disdain that Paul has towards such a question or towards such a conclusion. He says, by no means. Another way of expressing this would be, God forbid such a thing. And then he further answers his question by asking another question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And to live in it means to continue to persist in unrepentant sin. How can you who have died to sin still live in it? Notice the impossibility of such a thing. It is not possible. How can we continue to live in sin if we have died to it? Indeed, a believer cannot, a believer is not able to continue to live in unrepentant sin. Why? Because he has died to it. 
Now let's pause for a moment and ask what Paul does and does not mean by our dying to sin. He says we have died to sin. What does he mean by that and what does he not mean? Let me point out two false views that some take concerning Paul's teaching here. First, some believe that Paul is teaching a doctrine that has become known as Christian perfectionism. Sometimes it's also called entire sanctification. In in seminary, I had to read a book on entire sanctification and answer a question about it on an exam. So this false teaching, known as Christian perfectionism or entire sanctification, it states that some Christians, and listen here to the language, some Christians, only some Christians have died to sin. While other Christians, on the other hand, have not yet died to sin. They teach that some believers can reach a point in this life where they are perfect. They never consciously sin ever again. Those Christians, they would say, are entirely sanctified. Hence the term entire sanctification. You see, those Christians who have died to sin, they say, are entirely sanctified. Yet other Christians, they would say, have not yet died to sin. And this teaching originates by John Wesley and the Methodists and later became attached to the Pentecostal holiness movement. And they teach that there are Christians who have been baptized by the Spirit. You'll notice that language in our text, being baptized in Christ. They teach that some Christians have been baptized by the Spirit, and there are some Christians who have not been baptized by the Spirit. Those Christians that have been baptized by the Spirit have died to sin. And those Christians who have not received Spirit baptism have not yet died to sin. Beloved, this teaching is not supported by Holy Scripture. In fact, our author, the very same author of our text, Paul, teaches in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. All were baptized in one spirit, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We are all spirit baptized in our union with Christ. My friends, understand that when we receive Christ, we receive all of Him. All of His benefits. We do not just take justification and adoption first, and then later sanctification. That is to tear Christ asunder 
It is to divide Christ into pieces. When we are united to Christ, we receive the whole Christ. All that Christ has accomplished for us in His life, death, and resurrection are ours by spirit-wrought union with Him. In Christ you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, says Paul in Ephesians 1. And therefore, Paul tells us in the third verse of our passage this evening, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, this is a reference not to water baptism, but to spirit baptism, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. All of us who have been baptized into Christ, which is every believer, all who have been spirit baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. A more literal translation would be, as many as have been baptized into Christ. And every believer is baptized into his death, which means that all believers have died. If we were united to him, if we were baptized with Christ and we were baptized with him in his death, every believer has died to sin, which means that we now walk in newness of life just as Christ too received new life in the resurrection from the dead. And so this is the first false view that some teach regarding this passage. Now the second false view is not as dangerous, but is nevertheless still false. The second false view is that this dying to sin is something that continues throughout the life of the believer. Said in other words... Some wrongly teach that our dying to sin in Romans 6 is a progressive work of God in our lives that is only completed when we get to glory. Now, this can be a little bit confusing because we do believe in progressive sanctification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, as well as the Baptist Catechism, describes sanctification as a work of God whereby we are enabled more and more to die unto sin. You see, the progressive work, we are to do it more and more. And so there is a sense in which sanctification is a progressive work in our lives. But that is not the aspect of our sanctification that Paul is teaching in this passage. And so what is Paul teaching in Romans chapter 6? Well, here it is. Paul is teaching a one-time, definitive, irreversible death to the reigning power of sin. Let me repeat that. Paul is teaching a one-time, definitive, irreversible death to the reigning power of sin in your life. Perhaps it is best understood in view of our 
covenant representatives. You remember those two covenant heads, Adam and Christ. You see, we all come into this world united to the first covenant representative, Adam. Remember, he represented all of humanity. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. He plunged us into an estate of sin and misery. Therefore, sin is the master of and reigns over all who are in Adam. But when we are united to Christ by faith, we die once for all to the reigning power of sin. It is no longer our master. Look back again at that last verse of chapter 5 that I said would come back again. It says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is the context for our death to sin. The one who is united to Christ has died to the reign of sin. It no longer has mastery over him. Righteousness now reigns over the one in Christ. Do you see how the one united to Christ has had a definitive breach with the reigning power of sin? This is what Paul means by dying to sin here in Romans chapter 6. And we call it definitive sanctification. Not progressive sanctification, but definitive sanctification. We must be careful not to interpret this passage in light of our progressive sanctification. It could be said this way. We need not interpret this passage in light of our ongoing experience with the struggle of sin whereby we die more and more to it. No, we need to interpret it in light of our definitive sanctification. That is, in light of our one-time death to the reigning power of sin. Now, you ask, how can it be that I have died to sin, yet in my experience, I still commit sins all the time. How can this be? How can I have died to sin, yet still commit them? Well, you may have died to sin, but sin is still alive in you. By dying to sin, you can no longer live in it, meaning you cannot remain in consistent, unrepentant sin. That is impossible. You have died to sin as your master. It does not reign over you. And it is precisely because you have died to sin that you are now commanded, according to Romans chapter 8, to put to death that remnant of sin. That remains. Because you have died to sin, you are now commanded to put to death 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, the misdeeds of the flesh. You see, without your definitive sanctification, there would be no progressive sanctification. Without dying to sin as your master, you could not put to death the remaining sin that influences you. Your death to the power of sin and your new life in Christ unto righteousness is what empowers you to engage in the slaughterhouse of sin. And so again, we must not interpret this passage in light of our ongoing experience with the struggle of sin, but in light of our once-for-all death to the reigning power of sin. Now, all that I have just said implies that we are to interpret this passage in light of the objective accomplishment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In light of the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what Paul is going to tell us in verses 5 through 10. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, these verses are telling us that it is impossible to think about our death to sin and new life to God apart from the death and resurrection of Christ. We cannot think of it apart from the gospel. Paul is telling us that our own death to sin and new life to God is necessarily attached to the objective, historical accomplishment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When He died on the cross, at that moment in history, our old self was crucified with Him. Just as we all sinned in Adam, we all died to sin in Christ. For those who are united to Him by faith. So again, it is helpful to think of this with respect to our two covenant representatives. When Adam, our first representative, sinned, we all sinned. And sin became our master. It ruled over us. It reigned over us. And this defines our old self that Paul talks about in this verse. Our old self, the person that was ruled by sin and Satan. The one who sin had mastery over. That was our old self. But our old self was crucified with Christ, the second representative. When Christ died, everyone whom He represents was crucified with Him on the cross. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 6. Therefore, we are now free from sin. Verse 7. And now, 
Because of your union with Christ by faith, your new self is ruled by righteousness. Just as we all sinned in Adam, our first representative, so we all died to sin and are alive to God in Christ, our second representative. Do you remember how Jesus responded to the Pharisees' accusation that He casted out demons by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of Satan? He said, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. He was bringing the kingdom. And He goes on to say, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And what he was speaking of right then was precisely what he would do in the accomplishment of the gospel. You see, Satan is that strong man, but Christ in bringing the kingdom bound at that strong man and is now plundering the goods from the strong man. He is plundering the goods of his palace, of his kingdom. And what are those goods that he plunders? They are you and me. You see, Christ comes and he takes us from the kingdom of Satan and he transfers us into his own kingdom now reigned by righteousness that is your definitive sanctification he has taken you from from one realm in which you used to live and now he has transferred you to a new kingdom ruled by him reigned by righteousness where you now live that is what it means to be definitively sanctified it means that we are sanctified, set apart from the reigning power of sin, and now set apart unto a new life to God in righteousness. We have died to sin as our master and have been raised with Christ to the power of a new life. And that, beloved, is an irreversible, unrepeatable event in your life. This is not an ongoing process, but a decisive and definitive event. Christ died and rose from the dead once. He entered into our estate of sin and misery by taking on our sins. Death had dominion over Him for a time, but He rose from the dead and will never die again, verses 9 and 10. It is unrepeatable and irreversible. He can never die again. He has the power of an indestructible life. And so too is your dying to sin, an unrepeatable event in your life. Your rising up to newness of life in Christ is an unrepeatable event in your life. You are a new man. Christ is now your master so that righteousness reigns 
in you. And this brings us, beloved, to Paul's command. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how you must think of yourself. We must consider that we have a new identity in Christ Jesus. John Murray is so helpful in explaining this command in his commentary. I think he's really quite the champion on this doctrine of definitive sanctification altogether. And he speaks of this command here in verse 11. And he says, we are not, we are not commanded to become dead to sin and alive to God. These are presupposed. In other words, for the believer, this is already true. And so it's not a command to become dead to sin. And he goes on to say, and it is not by reckoning these to be facts, that they become facts. The force of the imperative, he says, is that we are to reckon with and appreciate the facts which already are by virtue of our union with Christ. You see, the command is for you to understand what is already true about you. And so conceive of yourself as being dead to sin and alive to God. Now, I'm not naive, or at least too naive. I know that this is very hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Because in our experience, we still deal with sin. And fall prey to temptations time after time. We struggle, don't we? And so we don't always feel like we are dead to sin, do we? The great pastor, theologian, John Owen, understood this command, understood this doctrine in a very pastoral way, I think. He once said there are two great problems in pastoral ministry. One of them is persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that they are indeed under the dominion of sin. And the second is persuading those who are no longer under the dominion of sin that they are indeed no longer under the dominion of sin. Beloved congregations, do not let your experience with sin deceive you into thinking that you are under its power any longer if you are in Christ. It's the reason why Paul began this passage asking, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We cannot continually persist. In unrepentant sin. We have died to it. 
I like the way Dr. Joel Beakey once put it, the president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He said that in Christ we are no longer sinaholics. Does sin still have an influence in your life? Yes. And we will continue to sin until we go on to be with Christ in glory. But this fact does not undermine the fact that you are now dead to the reigning power of sin. In fact, death to sin is what enables you by the power of the Spirit to put to death the sin that remains. Wonderful truths Holy Scripture teaches us. And I want you to think about, for just a moment, the necessary consequences of this doctrine in light of some of the issues we are currently seeing in the church today. You see, if your new identity in Christ is one that is dead to sin and alive to God then can a person united to Christ be labeled a gay Christian? Or what about an alcoholic Christian? Or a lying Christian? An adulterous Christian? You see, you cannot put any adjective, a sinful adjective, in front of your identity in Christ. Because you are dead to sin. This can never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Think of how Paul puts the matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. He does not say you are being sanctified. But you were definitively and irreversibly sanctified, set apart from the reigning power of sin, and set apart unto God to live in righteousness. Now, you may struggle with same-sex attraction, or with alcoholism, or any other sin that we can deal with in this life. We will all continue to fight against the influence of sin for the remainder of our current lives. But as we battle against these sins, we are to do so knowing that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so the application here is not a do this or don't do that. It's not live righteously and don't live sinfully. Paul will go on 
to command those things in the following verses. But the application here is a way of thinking of yourself. If you think according to the truth, it will have profound effects upon your way of living. And that's why what you believe is so vital to your way of life. The very first step in applying the scriptures to your life is believing what it says. Believing what is true of God. Believing what is true of His gospel. Believing what is true of yourself. And it's why doctrine is so important. If you know the doctrine, then its application will necessarily follow. And so the application in this passage is that you are to understand who you are in light of the accomplished gospel of Jesus Christ. You, beloved, are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. To Him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the accomplishment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power by which we are saved. And we thank You that You opened our minds to receive this gospel. For in and of ourselves we are fools and despised it. But yet you have allowed us to see it and believe it and so have received eternal life. Let us now walk, O God. Empower us, O God, by your Spirit to walk in newness of life, for we have died to sin and are alive to you in Christ Jesus. Give us the grace in order to do what you command. In Christ's most holy name, amen. And now our benediction comes from Romans chapter 16. Please look up and receive the blessing of your God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed.